Welcome to season four of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In the second episode of season four, we feature audio from the No Better Friend Corp forum on fighting critical race theory that we hosted in Dane County in August of 2021. Today's episode is in two parts and features both Mike Gonzalez from the Heritage Foundation and Adam Coleman from Wrong Speak Publishing. In part one of today's episode, you'll hear from Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow and author from the Heritage Foundation. Mike spent close to 20 years as a journalist and 15 of those he spent reporting from Europe, Asia, and Latin America. He left journalism to join the administration of President George W. Bush, where he worked at the Securities and Exchange Commission and the State Department. Today, he'll dive into the origins and history of both critical race theory and critical legal studies. He'll discuss when the focus changed from class to race, and he'll teach you how to identify critical race theory in today's culture. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Um, it's great. I've been crisscrossing the country. I was in Chicago and Dallas a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be in Omaha tomorrow. Uh, it's, it's great to come to Madison, the, the, the belly of the beast, uh, as you will hear from my conversation. Uh, Madison is, has played a key role in critical uh, race theory. You, some of you are nodding your heads, so you do know this history. I will give you history today, history of ideas, and I will do so in the hope that this will make you better at what you do. I want to thank you for caring about critical race theory. Yes, the gaslights are flickering. Do not listen to them when they say they're not flickering. They're lying to you. You're right. You're fight. You're, 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 you're in the line of fire. You're, you're trying to stop this country from being changed, transformed completely. It all starts here, actually, in Germany. Of all, critical race theory is all about race, but it starts with this group of very white Germans in Thuringia in 1923 who are gathered for what they call the Marxist Work Week. Uh, Communists in Europe were very concerned in the, in the early 20s that the, the workers were not rising, the proletariat were not rising and overthrowing the capitalist class as Marx and Engels had promised. Uh, it had only happened in one backwater place, Russia. It happened in Hungary for about 300 days, but the German Revolution failed in 1919, it failed in Italy, and they, they get together to discuss what to do. Um, uh, I just want to point out a couple of people there. Um, that gentleman there, George Lukács, no, no, don't go, George Lukács, it was the culture commissar in the Hungarian Soviet. His bright idea was that by introducing sexual depravity to school children, uh, K through 12, he could uh, destroy the family and destroy the nation state. And so they taught not sex ed, but the real sexual depravity. Um, and then uh, the other gentleman here is Felix Vail, a very wealthy German uh, who then goes on to found the, the Frankfurt School, the School for Social Research, Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt University, uh, where they explore what to do. They come to the conclusion that the reason why there are no revolutions is because the worker has bought into the cultural givens of the, of the, of the oppressor. He's bought into the superstructure. He has accepted God, the family. Uh, uh, he has accepted the capitalist system and the nation state. So the worker has become his own oppressor. And they, they figure out, they, they start, to, start to wonder, what can we do about this? How do we destroy this? Um, critical theory itself is a result of this. It's a, it was a, an essay in 1937 by the third director of the Institute, uh, Max Horkheimer. 
Uh, he, he, he does think, you know, the, the, the roots of this uh, with, with Marx, Sigmund Freud, um, him and his assistant, Herbert Marcuse, say, well, yeah, the worker has, is, has completely bought into the superstructure. Capitalism has suckered him into it. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot play this tape. This is uh, Horkheimer right before he dies in 1969, admitting, this is very good, you can find it online. Uh, he's speaking German, but there, there are subtitles in which he's saying, no, we need less freedom. If we're going to have the justice that we want, we need less freedom because capitalism is too good. Capitalism produces the goods, produces material comfort, and, and the worker will never rise if, if we have, so we need to have less freedom to suppress this. He says that. I was going to show it to you. So it believes that, that the individuals have created the superstructure uh, that enlaves them, uh, enslaves them. It urges a transformation of society by undermining all of the institutions, all the traditions, applying a barrage of criticism to them. What they try to do is try to make they say, if we, if we let the workers and the people understand this evil superstructure, how evil the church is and how evil the family is and how evil the nation state is, they will liberate themselves. Uh, Marcuse's famous phrase is, all liberation depends on the consciousness of servitude. You, good people of America, do not think of yourselves as serfs or slaves. You think of yourselves as living in, in the freest country in the world. They say you're wrong. You are ignoring the, 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 the oppressive superstructure that keeps you down, and their job is to make you aware of it. This is from the movie The Matrix, uh, which explains critical theory really well, because it is the same thing as The Matrix. Here, uh, uh, Morpheus, by the way, I, this dates me, it's like 1992, uh, cult classic, I forget. But Morpheus is explaining to Neo, it's everywhere. You know, everywhere you see, it's in the church, it's everything. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. And this is one of my, this is a great, uh, too bad you can't see this, in, in which Morpheus again is telling Neo, look at the people around you, look at the cops, look at the engineers, look at the lawyers. They don't know they need to be liberated. Our job is to make them understand that they need to be liberated. And it was in the Matrix. I was watching it at 3 a.m. My family was on the, uh, at, at the coast with my children. My, my wife was with my children, so I'm watching the Matrix. I'm like stopping every five minutes. Like, oh my God, this is critical theory. <laughs> the Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? 
Eventually, the Frankfurt School has to leave for Teachers College because to escape uh, uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, Columbia University offers them a perch. They come to the United States. Uh, they become very influential. They hate the American worker and the American just as much as they hated the European worker. We took them in. We gave them a, a, a safe passage. And they say the American worker is just completely suckered by his Wi-Fi and his movies and victim mature and his, his no good culture. Uh, and so they begin to criticize American traditions and American culture and American institutions. Uh, they become, so when, when we liberate Germany, they, they all go back to Germany, leaving the hellhole that America is, uh, Horkheimer and Adorno and all the rest. One of them stays behind, Herbert Marcuse, who's Horkheimer's assistant. He becomes very influential with the New Left. The New Left was this, uh, a bunch of radicals in the 60s um, that actually agreed with critical theory and, and they believe that economics was not going to get the worker to do anything. They all begin to look for a substitute proletariat who's going to lead this revolution to overthrow the system, the American system. Uh, and and Marcuse is watching the riots on TV. By the way, Marcuse was a, a very awful man himself. He thought that uh, his first uh, book, well, not his first book, but one of his main books was on, on sex. Again, they're all sex crazed. They say, you know, have orgies, you know, destroy the family, liberate yourself libidinally. Um, uh, because he understood, again, that sex is such a strong urge that you would destroy the family. Uh, but he then realized, he's the, the race riots, and he says, aha, I got my replacement for the proletariat. This is what he says. It is the population of the ghetto that is going to lead this revolt. He says this many, many times. It's not just one phrase. This new left, all of this ferment, goes into the law schools. The lawyers begin to say, it's just all true. There is a superstructure. It is oppressive. But it is, and these are Marxist lawyers and law students, but it is because it is written into the law as such. The law itself has been written by the oppressor class, by the rich, by the powerful, in order to keep their own, uh, their, their own power, their own wealth. Uh, and they begin to, to, have, to hold conferences every year to discuss these things. Uh, you see some of the things they say here. Suffice it to say, there are many people at the time. I think one of the best was the dean of uh, Duke University Law School, uh, 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 Paul Carrington, who sees the danger in this. You know, the law doesn't need just cops, and thank you for what you do, but the law needs all of us to, to obey the law. We need to have deference to the law. And he, they begin to say critical legal theory is going to destroy deference to the law because if we begin to believe that the law is just a ruse to perpetuate the ruling class, then people will, it's going to destroy society from within. The critical legal theorists uh, were, were new era uh, guys. The, 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 Madison appears. This is where they found critical legal theory in 1977 uh, here at the University of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Wisconsin in Madison. They have their foundational meeting here. Uh, and they, 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 these people are all the, the leaders of it. Duncan Kennedy, who writes how influenced he is by Korkheimer. Uh, and and, and they're, all, they're all very upfront about the fact that they're influenced by, the critical, by critical theory. Does their name their discipline critical legal theory, critical uh, uh, legal studies? It's not a coincidence. And, but they write that they're influenced by Horkheimer. They're also influenced by the postmodernists, but I don't want to go into that because that's a, that's a tangent. The postmodernists were just as bad, believe me. Um, so it, they see the law school as the place 
to do opposition to Reagan's America. They see the law school as a place to recruit, to organize, uh, to, to, to really mount a Marxist revolution that's gonna be long lasting against what Reagan is doing to America, which they think is awful. One thing that begins to happen is that some of these critical legal uh, scholars were black. And, and, and also of Mexican descent and, and Asian. They, they're attending the conferences, they agree on everything with critical legal theory, almost everything. But as they, they begin to have deep disagreements with their white, uh, with their white um, uh, colleagues, they begin to say, yeah, no, they, 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 the oppressive class has written this, this, these laws and to perpetuate their power and to, to protect their wealth, but they have something else in common. They're all white, and you're not seeing this because you're white. Um, and, 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 and they begin to have real big debates at, this, at these conferences that go city to city. Where, this is where they agree. The law is a product of a superstructure that is self-serving. Uh, the law can never be objective nor neutral, and the equal application of the law is gonna produce bad results. Uh, where they disagree, though, is on the issue of race. And there, the disagreements are deep, and then, they finally, these critical legal theorists decide to break off, to take their ball home. So they hold a conference in Madison, uh, at a convent, and it's the foundational conference of critical race theory. Uh, it is organized by Kimberly Crenshaw, it is attended by Neil Gotanda, and, and all these other critical legal studies professors who were not white. Uh, go ahead. Uh, this is another great video in which Kimberly Crenshaw admits, yeah, I just came up with that term. You know, this is the first time we use the term critical race theory, but it was pulled out of my you know what. Um, you know, the, the writing has been taking place for, for decades. Um, uh, Derek Bell at Harvard has been writing about the subject of race. Richard Delgado at Alabama has been writing about it, but it doesn't get named until 89. Um, you know the stuff, because you're, you're nodding. And then um, they begin to do something else. They begin to try to evict the white critical legal theorists from, um, from uh, uh, um, uh, civil rights, the civil rights field. They say, you don't have the lived experience to write about this or to talk about this. You can take your talents elsewhere. And sometimes it is said quite forcefully. You know, Richard Delgado writes a, an essay in which he says, you're very talented people. You should take, uh, you should abandon uh, civil rights. Uh, and if you don't, this is going to be imperialism and white supremacy. So the critical legal theory, so the, Critical race theory overtakes the field eventually. Through sit-ins, through protests, they put pressure on the universities to hire 
not just black law professors, but black law professors who agree with them. For example, they write very mean things about Clarence Thomas when he's appointed uh, by Bush. Clarence Thomas is black. If all they cared about was the hiring of blacks, they would have welcomed Clarence Thomas. No, they hate Clarence Thomas. They write caustically about him. What they want is black or, or non-white law professors who also are neo-Marxist, who agree with them, who hate capitalism, and they succeed. And this is a good essay. Uh, they actually do, do succeed to take over. They become dominant in the field of civil rights. However, they remain um, limited to the university. For, so in the, in the 90s, through these sit-ins, they make the university uh, hire more professors. This is, this is, the, this is Derek Bell, uh, the, the godfather, the recognized godfather of critical race theory. He writes about this from the 1970s on. Uh, then he finally gets a name in 89 in Madison, critical race theory. But he holds these protests at different universities trying to get people who agree with him. The mean one is the one at Harvard in 1990, when he pretty much just walks away from Harvard because they won't hire a black professor who's a critical race theory. Because guess who introduces Derrick Bell at the 1990 protest? <laughs> A young, wiry law student, uh, and if you're, if you're a conspiracy theorist, your head is exploding right now. <laughs> you know? And I don't think that it's a conspiracy. I think that it's a wonderful coincidence that uh, this young man who does be gone to become our 44th president has all these nice things to say about Derrick Bell as he introduces him at this very key protest as, as, as they begin to take over the law schools. Now, how did this one man do all this? How's he accomplished all this? He hasn't done it simply by his good looks and easy charm. <laughs> Although he has both in ample measure. <laughs> he hasn't done it simply because of the excellence of his scholarship. Although his scholarship has opened up new vistas and new horizons and changed the standards of what legal writing is about. <laughs> Open up your hearts and your minds to the words of Professor Derek Bell. Um, so again, this is, this is what they do. This is their, their main, their, their, uh, as Vivek and all of us will know, we read these people all the time. I have bottles of Excedrin littering my study because I read uh, Richard, uh, Eric Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Harris, Patricia Williams. All the stuff they do in your schools and in your places of work have to do because of the writing. It is all CRT. Don't let them gaslight you. And, and, and it begins to finally break out of the university. It, uh, Richard Carranza, the, New York, the superintendent of New York Public Schools, begins to introduce it in the New York Public School System. That's the largest school system in the country, by the way. I think it's one million kids. I begin to write about it in 2017 when Carranza is using it. But then last year, it explodes. It just explodes. It explodes for reasons that you don't understand. George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. We have riots and, and demonstrations and lootings and the leaders of your elite institutions surrender. They surrender. They say, we are a systemically racist country. We, are, we have to change this. This is a racial reckoning. <clears throat> and all of the tenets of CRT now enter police departments and the military and the houses of worship and the schools. And it's wrecking our lives and it's going to wreck our country unless we do something about it. Um, but it is because of the year that we had last year. And you all know this. So, 
I just want to add this slide because to me, the main problem with critical theory is that it sows distrust in the institutions, right? The main problem with critical legal theory is that it sows distrust in the law. My main problem with critical race theory, it's not that it tells white kids are racist. That's awful. That's awful, by the way, the fact that you're being told you're racist because, no, it's what it does to the black family is that it justifies uh, crime, it tries to decriminalize crime. These are the writings of the architects. It tries to justify dysfunction instead of making people live up to, to, to better practices, to better habits, to better ideas, to close the, 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 the disparities this way, it tries to lower standards across the board, and that is, I find, just absolutely uh, disgusting. Uh, it teaches that, it teaches that the oppressor-oppressed narrative that you have been hearing about for the last 17 minutes, it teaches black kids uh, you're never going to amount to anything because of white supremacy, and even you cannot succeed individually. Uh, success will get you nothing. You need to destroy the system by acting collectively. And this is what Derek Bell himself writes. The godfather of critical race theory introduced so, so, so fulsomely by our 44th president in 1990, he writes this, and he writes this in many different ways. This is not just one quote. Another thing that's going to make you, if you're conspiracy-minded, we were talking about this, James and I, before. Herbert Marcuse, the critical theorist who stay, stayed behind and, and, and did so many bad things, his star pupil was Angela Davis, the Black Panther who went to prison in the early 70s, a communist, an unrepentant communist, was given the Lenin Peace Prize by Eric Honecker. That's the most uh, oppressive uh, uh, East German regime in the, in the, among the Soviet satellites. Uh, she today goes to universities, she goes to UVA, she stands up with a fist in the air and says, I am a communist, I've always been a communist, and students who don't know anything stand up and give her a rousing cheer. And guess whose intellectual mentor she is? The founders of Black Lives Matter. There she is with Patrice Cullors, uh, one of the founders and leaders of Black Lives Matter, the, the, the executive director of the main Black Lives Matter group, uh, BLM, GNF, Global Network Foundation. She's also very influential with Alicia Garza. Goes from Marcuse to BLM. Because you're being lied to, how do you recognize it? Anything that uses systemic racism, that uses any of this lingo, it, will be, it is critical race theory. You can tell your teacher, your school superintendent, stop lying to me, this is critical race theory. Anything that says, no, America doesn't have a culture, is just a front uh, for white culture, and, and actually being punctual and loving to read and write and loving, li loving literacy, uh, just, it's just white stuff. It's false, it's disgusting, it's racist, we need to get rid of it, and it is critical race theory. Uh, anything that argues that people are born with a privilege uh, just because they're white and that has prevented them from uniting with blacks to overthrow capitalism uh, because they get these wages of whiteness, that is critical race theory. That's a, an offshoot of critical race theory called whiteness studies. For our purposes, it is critical race theory is being taught in our schools. Uh, next. And it's being taught in our places of work. The, last, the fourth one is uh, this idea that the system is rigged, so there is no meritocracy. Meritocracy is a myth, something that, that CRT writers write about often, uh, that all of the measures of success, all of, the, all, all of the criteria cannot be used. You cannot use SATs, you cannot use tests, because this is all measuring the wrong thing. No, 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 it's critical race theory and it's bad. And the last one is uh, that equity has to replace equality. 
Equity is a fine word. They've corrupted it to mean unequal treatment by government that is illegal in our system of government. We have one constitution, the Constitution of 87, we, and, and we have the, 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 the Civil Rights Act, which we need to uphold. We cannot have the government treating people unequally because of their race. This is a gigantic step backward. Uh, and then the last slide is a shameless plug for my book. <laughs> uh, it, it's, but, 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 the book that's coming out September 7th is my next book uh, that is going to get me into a lot of trouble, BLM, The New Marxist Revolution. Uh, I, I only have this copy, but it comes out September 7th. You can pre-order it right now. You're, you're a wonderful audience. It's great to speak to you here in Madison, and thank you for coming out and caring about this issue. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed part one of today's episode. In part two, you'll hear from Adam Coleman, Adam is an author and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He was born in Detroit, but raised in a variety of states throughout the U.S. He self-published his first book, Black Victim to Black Victor, in March of 2021. Today, Adam will speak about his personal experiences with fatherlessness and homelessness. He will address the concept of social control, and he'll explain how you can help advocate for the concept of individual liberty, equality, and freedom that give all Americans an opportunity to succeed. I was very interested in the culture war and what was going on in the college campuses. Um, and to my surprise, what happened uh, after George Floyd and how the rest of the world started appearing like the college campuses. And I started seeing how the news media was portraying black people in a way that we're all just inherent victims. And I got absolutely sick and tired of everyone speaking for me. I got tired of the narrative that I'm always in danger, that there's nothing I can do about my circumstance, and that all my, tr uh, all my troubles throughout my life has to do with my skin color. Um, after that, I decided to start writing. I had never written a book, but I wanted to try. And it took me about nine months. I self-published my book, Black Victim of the Black Victor, and I'm absolutely proud of the uh, reaction to it. Um, I told you a little bit about myself. I'm one of those people who believes that you don't know anybody until you know their childhood. So I wanted to read a bit from, uh, from my book, if you don't mind. My father chose the simplest and laziest option a father could choose in reaction to having a child, to do nothing. I've thought countless times about how I feel about my father, and the one word that constantly comes to mind is weak. He was too weak a man to fight his sexual urges and stay faithful in his marriage. He was too weak a man to not involve himself in our lives for fear of hurting the marriage he betrayed with his infidelity. He was too weak a man to admit his mistakes to his children and apologize for the pain he inflicted by his absence. My father wasn't poor. In fact, he did well for himself as a tailor and a business owner, yet he allowed for his children to go in and out of homelessness while my mother was left to pick up the pieces. The nights sitting in a homeless shelter were never followed by a phone call from my father. Uh, I'm sorry. We're never followed by a phone call from my father to help financially or give emotional support. 
we suffered in silence from our father and the most minimal effort could have changed our trajectory. Yet he remained apathetic and absent. The last time I spoke with my father, I was 21 years old and it was over the phone. My son was born just months earlier and I was at a pivotal point in my life. I wanted to give one more attempt to have my father in my life and see if he could overcome his weak-minded nature as a father. Our conversation was brief, awkward, and he displayed the same behavior he had my entire life, disinterested. After that phone call, I made the decision that if he would not try, I wouldn't either. I never ignored his phone calls because he would have to attempt to contact me in order for me to ignore them. Ultimately, my weak father chose his role in our family on the day I was born. One day, I received a message from my mother telling me that my father was dead, that he died a few months prior to her message. My late knowledge that my father died exemplifies our relationship and how insignificant we were to him. There was nothing in his will for us because that would take effort and care to do so. What I realized was that his death meant nothing to me because he was dead to me long before his corporeal death. The reason I told you that story is because my story is not uncommon for a lot of black people in America these days. It's unfortunate to say that if you know someone who's black, you can pretty much guess more uh, the odds are in your favor that they grew up without their parents in the same home. Whether they're active in their life is a different story, but once you separate the family in that manner, you put the children at a disadvantage. And that was my life. Critical race theory would have done nothing for me as a child. If that garbage was taught to me as a kid, it would have made my life worse, not better. There was no theory, no conversation that can replace my father. There is no paycheck. There is no reparations. There is nothing that the government can do to replace who my father could have been. And that's why I'm here talking about critical race theory, because we're all sold this bill of goods that it is a way to equalize black Americans to white Americans by just making everybody hyper-focus on race. But I want to go at a different approach. I want to ask a question, why does, why does it appear that half of America believes this? All of a sudden, a year ago, nobody knew what critical race theory was in the majority. Now everybody knows what it is. And for some people, and unfortunately some of them on school boards, they believe that this ideology that some of them have just become aware of is the way to start racial justice. The way I see it is critical race theory only works if you believe in the greater conspiracy theory, because it's very conspiratorial. The greater conspiracy theory is that white supremacy is the sole motive for everything that happens in America. And the only way that conspiracy works is if you believe in either one or all four of lies. Um, 
you know, this is my theory. You can call it critical Coleman theory or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I wanted to go through this. So the reason I say it's conspiratorial is because it's very just that, conspiratorial. They believe that white supremacy is within all of you inherently and that no matter what you do, you're always perpetuating it. In every conversation, there is race involved, whether you realize it or not. And the way they outline critical race theory is much like a conspiracy theory. You know, if we want to talk about the JFK assassination, uh, you know, you find some way to support your end theory. The end theory for them is that white supremacy is everywhere. It's endemic. We always picture someone who's a, a conspiracy theorist with something on their wall with strings attached to pictures. And they're given the illusion that they're connecting the dots forward, but all they're doing is finding a path backwards. They already have their end conclusion. That's not how you work out a solution or find a real problem. That's what critical race theory is much like to me. It sounds like a conspiracy theory. So what are the lies? Lie number one, slavery was only about racial hatred. When you believe that lie, then you completely ignore all the nuances of American history, world history, just human history in general. You absolve the Ashanti tribes, uh, I should say the Ashanti empire within Africa and West Africa that willingly gathered their neighboring tribes, prisoned them, and sold them off to Europeans. And in some cases, they sold them for guns and other goods. And it completely absolves it from that being the existence because it is only because of the white European that this occurred. Well, what about the Africans? Did they not see race? No, they didn't see race because it wasn't about race. It was about tribe, it was about money, it was about power. It was, it was everything but race. The Europeans were just another, you know, another cog in the wheel as far as finding someone to work alongside, and it was a great benefit to them to sell their, uh, their rivals. Another thing that following that line of thought as far as slavery only being about racial hatred is ignoring that there were other people who were slaves within the United States, or I should say the colonies. In an article uh, titled Origin of the Idea of Race, is quoted, in the latter part of the 17th century, the demand for labor grew enormously, and it had become clear that neither Irishmen nor Indians made good slaves. More than that, the real threats to social order were the poor, freed whites who demanded lands and privileges that the upper-class colonial governments, governments refused. Some colonial leaders argue that turning, the, turning to African labor provided a buffer against the masses of poor whites. This theory, this lie, slavery was only about racial hatred, absolves everything that I just read here. That it was about control. It was about keeping the whites under control. It was about finding the best way to have slavery without dividing these people up and focusing on the rich, the government, and all the elites who were controlling them. 
Lie number two, Jim Crow was only about racial hatred. If you believe that, you skip everything else about Jim Crow. Jim Crow was bad for black people, but I argue it was also black for white Americans too. Anytime you split up a country based on something superficial, it is bad for everybody. It is not good business, except if you're part of one particular class, the elite class. We all know of the KKK. They proclaim themselves to be a Christian organization. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Um, <laughs> but why did the KKK come into an existence? The KKK was formed by Confederates that had lost the Civil War. But there was a particular reason why they started going after black people. I want to read a line from an article titled, The Ku Klux Klan and Violence at the Polls. Very short. By 1868, which is, I believe, one year after the ending of the Civil War, the Klan had evolved into a hooded terrorist organization responsible for murdering thousands of free blacks and their white Republican allies. I want to read that again. Free blacks and their white Republican allies. So why were they going after white Republicans? Because they knew that this voting block was not for the Democrats. It was not for the party that was fighting to keep them enslaved. They wanted social control. They wanted power. There was a reason why, at this heyday of Ku Klux Klan, that Congress was filled with Klansmen, proudly, openly. This was about politics. This was about power. This was about control. And black people were just a way that they can have that social control and keep them at bay, since majority of them lived in the South. Lie number three, the lack of black representation and racial disparities is a signifier of black oppression. I want to focus in on government, because I think that's been one of, the, one of the biggest lies that was sold to black Americans, was that your lack of representation within government is why you're not doing well. It's why you're not financially successful. That way of thinking has led for black people to automatically put trust into the government, to get into government, become government officials within certain cities, neighborhoods, whatever. And you can look at the case of Barack Obama, his presidency. Superficially, these are achievements. They sound good, they look nice, but what are the results? The results haven't been in favor of black people. Government representation means nothing if everyone's corrupt. And what happens is they use skin color to control people. I like to say that they ride into black ghettos and their Mercedes Benz and say the white man's bad as they roll back out of the ghetto and go into their suburbs and they wave at Officer Dan, who is white, and they're next to their neighbors who are white. They're hypocrites. They know what they're doing and they do it all the time. The problem is it works. This is about social control. This is about the government and the usage of government and representation within government as being the, the gaze of black empowerment. It's not. But believing that lie, believing that blacks need to get into government, 
on a consistent basis, now that they're all Democrats, is about social control. Line number four, and this might sound controversial, but I'll explain it. Line number four, there were no downsides to the civil rights movement. What I mean by that is, obviously, segregation is wrong, it's immoral. Jim Crow is wrong, it's immoral. The usage of separating people is wrong and immoral. But ignoring that there were downsides to the civil rights movement has been our detriment. When we see a black empowerment movement, when we see people saying, I'm standing up for the rights of black people, we automatically take them for their word and they gain power. So now we are to associate BLM with the 1960 civil rights movement. But it doesn't, it, it takes a while for us to realize that this is BS that we're being sold. These people aren't representations of the greatness of someone like Martin Luther King. But because we believe that lie, they gain power. And before we know it, they have too much power and too much control, too much say. Like they said, like our previous speaker said, they get into, their philosophy gets into companies. Their philosophy gets into government. And they are associated once again with the Democrat Party. So, once again, this lie to believe that black empowerment comes from these black movements, and this is, it's a good thing, right? We want black people to do better. But the automatic assumption leads us to be manipulated once again. Once again, it's social control. It's social control for blacks, and it's social control for white Americans, too. Because one of our weaknesses as Americans is that we are good-willed and we take people for face value, and they know that, and they use that against us. We don't want to be labeled as racist, bigoted, hateful. They know this. And that's how they use it against us. Once again, it's about politics, social control. That is the fourth and final lie. If you put them all together, and you believe that all these things are the situation at hand, then why wouldn't you believe that white supremacy is the motive for everything that happens in America? I want to go to one big thing, and I, I stated it before, as far as social control. It's about the government. It's about the elite. It's about the powerful. Race means nothing. This is, this is nothing. There's nothing more special about being black than white, Indian, Whatever, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. I'm a Christian before anything else. And they are using it against us. Multiculturalism is hard to pull off in any country, yet we've been able to pull it off here. And what they're trying to do is reverse it. The government is at play. And just about every historical event that I just read off involved the government at play. And people are using the government against us, against Americans, and especially against black Americans. 
Anytime there is anything political that needs to happen in America, they always reference black Americans. If they want to change the voting laws in Georgia, well, it's going to disproportionately affect black Americans. No, it's politics. It's social control. And the problem is that too many black Americans fall for it. They fall for the, the tricks. They get to call it Jim Crow 2.0. Why? To instill fear. You don't want this to happen to you again. It's not a reminder, it's a threat. It's about social control. It's about the government being in play. And too many black Americans trust in the government, trust in their politicians, especially if they're black. Because they've lost, they've lost the will to look at people for who they are. Too many, of, too many black Americans have lost the will to look past race. They used to be Christians. They might call themselves Christians, but they don't act like it. And I know I'm standing here as a black American, and it sounds like I'm waving my finger at black Americans. But the truth is the truth. I see it all the time. I see it every day. They would much rather refer to themselves as a black person than a Christian first. I don't do that. I don't care who I stand in front of. I don't care if there's white faces or whatever standing in front of me. Truth is truth. And you are my brothers and my sisters. Before I go, I want to read one last passage. It's from my book as well. Uh, it's a chapter titled, The Over-Reliance on Government. The government believes it's helping families by paying single mothers more money per child, but they are incentivizing reckless sexual behavior and careless family planning. The epidemic of fatherless children within the black community is being subsidized by the same government institutions that claim to care about black families. The government writes laws restricting access for black Americans in urban areas from possessing guns legally and making bureaucratic hurdles for law-abiding citizens that make the cost of legal ownership unappealing and unaffordable. How can we have a successful family outcome in such dangerous places where we are unable to protect ourselves adequately? These questions never get answered because they are inefficient with their care to respond to common sense inquiries. Despite the failures of constant government intervention, many black Americans are perfectly fine with an ever-growing and intrusive local and federal government. And this last line is the most important. The government hand that feeds you will always find a way to take away from you. Thank you. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.